fuck up. There are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Lekwalesa was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his work as a labor activist and Polish politician. Lionel Richie released Can't Slow Down, his second solo album, spawning singles like All Night Long and the ubiquitous Hello. Please note the release date of October 1983 for the album that won the Grammy for Album of the Year in 1985, because that shit makes no sense. The first cellular network in America was launched by Ameritech Mobile, later known as Singular, in Chicago, Illinois. And finally, in one of those moments that makes you think we get it right sometimes, the U.S. Senate established Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday as a national holiday, which has got to be the coolest thing that happened in October of 1983. Hi, everybody. My name is Drew McQueenie, and welcome to 80s All Over. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. What's up, buddy? Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McQueenie, and as always, I'm joined by my <laughs> co-host, McNeekman. Hey Scott, yeah, I heard you have some big news. What's your big news, man? Oh yeah, we I uh, was um adopted a new cat. Woohoo! Yeah, I am a cat lover, and my lovely cat Jones passed away a few months ago. Waited a bit to get over uh, most of the hard pain. Uh, my sister's friend, she runs a foster service, and she had a three-year-old boy who didn't really have many friends at the foster care center. So I adopted him instead. He is three years old, and his name is Hudson in honor of the late, great Bill Paxton. Very nice, man. I'm very excited. And uh, I saw the pictures on Twitter, and he's a handsome boy. Yeah, he's a good cat. But, Drew, there are two movies we're going to cover here that we omitted accidentally in previous episodes. And I would like to introduce the first of these two films to you via song, if I may. Sure. Deadly eyes, they're watching you. They're giant rats, and they'll eat you, too. How's that? Uh, Delightful. Did you ever read the book this one was based on? No, but research indicates that the author Frank Herbert was none too pleased with the uh, shitty adaptation of his novel The Rats, which was turned into Deadly Eyes, not to be confused with of unknown origin, because this is even worse than that. And it is infamously known, and I always thought this was a rumor, certain uh, rats in this film, giant rats, were played by dachshunds in costumes. 
They're clearly dogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always thought that was a rumor, and then once it was proven, I saw it in the film. You can act. You can definitely spot it. And unfortunately, I also read that one of the dogs died of heat exhaustion or something like that, and that adds to just another layer of ick. Although it does, and you know what the saving grace of this movie is. You know what? Who? You know the name. Scatman Crothers? Without a doubt. Scatman, I mean, giant rat horror movie and Scatman Crothers. Okay, those two side dishes alone mm, might be worth digging it up. But Robert Klaus is not a horror director. He's barely an action director. And uh, despite the presence... Baffled by the fact that Enter the Dragon is such a good movie because it is the sole good movie on this guy's entire resume. It also features the charming, I always get this wrong, Lisa Langlois? I believe that's right, Langlois. She's more interesting. Her and Scatman are more interesting than the two leads. Sam Groom and Sarah Botsford. Anyone? Canadian players? It looks like a tax shelter production. And when your monster is as ridiculous as this film's monster is, there's nothing else you have to hang on to. You can't make a horror film where every single time the rats show up, you start laughing. But let's move on (laughs) to another film that (laughs) kind of plays like a comedy. But boy, what a cast. Young Warriors! This one has such a bizarre first 20 minutes. If you showed me the first 20 minutes and turned it off and told me that it was a comedy about a fraternity of wannabe doctors trying to get laid, I would believe you. Because the whole thing is goofy and fratty and stupid. And then it turns into a movie about how the worst thing that ever happened to this guy is his sister got raped and murdered. She is treated like the disposable plot point she is never really dealt with again. It's his world that was ruined. It's him that was violent. It's him that has to live with it. The hinge moment almost I, it feels like a reshoot. It just feels like it was put in there and they said, no, we got to sell the, this arc a little darker. And it just... And it's super ugly. They it, The whole movie's goofy until that point. And then the rape is awful. It, the way it's staged, how graphic it is, it's awful. Uh, it's also known as The Graduates of Malibu High. Young Warriors was the UK title. That's how I saw it on the MGMUA label VHS style back in the day. The weirdest part of this whole film has got to be the classroom scene where comedian Dick Sean, playing a dead straight role as a ethics professor, has a debate about Nazi moralism with one of the Van Patten kids. That's about as weird as exploitation cinema gets because that conversation is a, a just an insane nightmare in a movie that is as poorly written as this. But yeah, this uh, early canon release w- is noteworthy <laughs> to schlock fans for a couple different reasons. Ernest Borgnine and Richard Roundtree, uh, Linda Day George without Christopher George. How the f- was that even legally <laughs> fucking possible? I wouldn't have thought so after last month, no. And an early performance by Linnea Quigley, who horror fans will, of course, know from countless schlock movies. Death Wish Jr. would be a way to put it, right? Yeah, it eventually turns into he he goes vigilante and everybody tries to stop him. And Ernest Borgnine feels bad because he put the gun in his hands. And it is just awful. Drew, speaking of awful, I'm tempted to give this entire next film over to you as we move into October 1983 proper as the british say Mm -hmm. let let me see if you have any history or knowledge or insight on the david carradine directed americana Uh, i i think we've talked about this a little bit and i i do believe it passion projects frequently are dangerous because they tend to not end up being very good movies they they're things that sit in your head for so long that by the time you finally scratch the itch 
it doesn't make sense to anybody outside of you. And this one was shot in the early 70s. Uh, it was shot by David Carradine, who directed it and produced it and stars in it. And it is meant to be sort of a fable, a fairy tale thing where a Vietnam vet wanders into a small town and there's a carousel there that he wants to restore. It's clearly he has to do this to to give America back its innocence because Vietnam has taken it from him. And it couldn't be any heavier a hand. And it's especially weird because having been shot in the early 70s, he then ran into financial trouble. This thing went through a lot of hands while he tried to figure out what to do with it. Edited, re-edited, cut it. Finally got it released in 1983, and it feels like a relic. It's probably most notable for uh, the performance by his female lead, Barbara Siegel or Barbara Hershey who was full-on super hippie at this point and with Carradine and he is not only doing his own sort of kung fu riff because it's the the guy who wanders into the small town nobody's going to let him be what he wants to be by the time it wraps up it wraps up with a disgusting punchline that is ridiculous. Dan Haggerty, uh, best known as Grizzly Adams, uh, trained all the animals in the film, including a dog who David Carradine beats to death in the end of the movie. Oh, good. Um, You know what? I was going to say, you know, a lot of times we're a little bit cautious about spoilers, but F that. F it. That's the thing. You're waiting for the punchline, and the punchline is you're going to get to watch him beat a dog to death. The gist is that he was willing to debase himself to this level to get what he needs to finish a fucking merry-go-round. And you know what? I'll help you, America. You're innocent again. Yeah, when your movie is 90% symbolism, uh, you know, it better be good symbolism. Next, speaking of some fairly good symbolism, <laughs> we have master filmmaker Robert Altman with uh, one of his films that I had never seen before, Streamers. Now, some of you men are going to be dying in this war. All you think we got? For what? They ship us out, Get out of here. Out and free. I hate it. Yes, I know. Everybody hates it. Don't you think I hate it, Martin? You know, I got my draft notice. This damn Vietnam didn't even exist. We fought it through two wars already, and we're going to make it through this one. You don't really binge Robert Altman, per se. You kind of just, over the years, I think, like, The Player was the first one that made me go, wow. And then I went back, I've revisited MASH and McCabe and Mrs. Miller and so many great films. I don't know if he's, like, a binge director. So there are some blank spots, and I was excited to sit down and watch it. And for the first, I don't know, 25 minutes, I'm like, boy, this sure seems stagey for a Robert Altman film. And it just slowly opens up and gets bigger and wider. And it's just, it's a really interesting character piece about four guys who are about to be shipped off to Vietnam. The entire thing takes place uh, in their barracks in one night. One of the key revelations of the film is that one of these privates is gay. I think you and I have very different experiences with Altman because I, this was right around when, um, Altman was working in a very stagey, like everything he was doing was sort of stage oriented. And you can tell that his head had gone back to stage and he was thinking about how to adapt that to film. Uh, When I started going nuts for Altman, it was because so much of it hit video and streamers and Secret Honor and movies like that were all immediately. I am still to this day impressed that a what 15 year old kid would want to watch streamers or Secret Honor. I, I was a weirdo. Part of this also was. 
I was already sort of aware of Matthew Modine, who was very interesting. Young actors to me. There's another movie that we'll talk about later this month that is kind of a touchstone for a lot of young actors in Hollywood at this particular time. But I was fascinated by guys who clearly were drawing on the method tradition, who were trying to be that next generation of Dean and Montgomery Clift and all those guys. And they wanted to be those guys. And to me, Matthew Modine was an early contender for, okay, look at how this guy's working. Look at the kind of thing he's trying to do. He's about more than just the dumb sex comedy stuff. He was an early magnet for me. I was intrigued by him. I followed him film to film as well. Watching this film for the first time, I just kept thinking, oh, these are like the the legs that he stood on before Full Metal Jacket. He's done that before. When I saw Full Metal Jacket, I never seen Matthew Modine playing a tough guy or a soldier or anybody with a gun. But now seeing him in this movie, uh, it's like, oh, maybe that probably partially why he got that role. He followed the sort of Tom Cruise playbook, which was work with strong directors as quickly and as often as you can. You could tell, like, working with Alan Parker or working with uh, Robert Altman, those are big choices because it puts you in a position to learn from somebody who's already made masterpieces. As well, I think uh, David Rabe, who wrote the play and the screenplay for streamers, I really respect and love David Rabe's work. I'm a big fan of In the Boom Boom Room, and I think Hurley Burley is one of the great plays of the 80s. I actually directed a production of Hurley Burley, and I love it dearly. So Rabe is a guy who, like Mamet, was interested in sort of toxic masculinity before we even had names for it. Like Rabe, right away in this, is dealing with the dynamic that happens when you put all these young men in a place, and you're asking them to police each other and to push each other and break each other to some degree, and that's what the process is supposed to do. So I think Rabe was fascinated by any situation that put men in this kind of pressure cooker and then breaks them and he wants to see what happens right afterwards and i think streamers is a great version of that a really interesting revelation to me because i know him almost exclusively from comedic work david allen greer is excellent in this movie and other people would go yeah he's done other drama i had never seen that before so it's clear to the viewer that the gay character in question is gay and it's not clear to the rest of them is that look This is Altman. We're talking about his follow-up to come back to the five and dime Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, where he deals with one of the first openly trans characters, I think, in mainstream cinema. Altman was progressive. Altman was a guy that was looking to explore these things. And I think he wanted to let the audience in on it early so that you feel some of that fear throughout the entire thing. What happens if anybody twigs to what's really going on or who I really am? And imagine that first night, imagine the terror of that first night, knowing that these guys can't know your secret and have to know everything else about you and trust you. Right. Also, great performance by George Zunza. He deserves mention, and I love saying his name. Another actor who, unfortunately, I don't enjoy saying his name very often is Robert Hayes. True. Whilst I drink an entire pitcher of boiling hot water, tell everybody about Touched. I was remembering sitting in the classroom small concentrating I used to concentrate so hard but those words just went right over me couldn't listen I couldn't hang on to the words something got in my way I knew as much or more than anybody else in the classroom sometimes I'd pipe up with a thought or an impression everyone was so amazed Say, where'd you learn that, Daniel? Who told you that? Nobody told me that, I said. I thought of it myself. I am 
original thoughts. I know you did, Daniel. We're talking at this point now about one of the most obscure films of Robert Hayes' career, and it is a career marked by obscurity. Dude, trench coat is not obscure. Utilities, not obscure. Take this job and shove it. What are you talking about? This guy is bigger than Emilio Estevez. John Flynn, who I really like. Go on to direct bestseller and lockup after this. Sorry, go ahead. Who before this had directed Rolling Thunder. Uh, John Flynn and The Outfit. John Flynn is a really good sort of tough guy filmmaker. I think he did some really strong work. I'm baffled as to what attracted him to this one, which is a love story set in a mental institution. No, they break out of a mental institution and then they go to South Jersey, which is not a promotion. Robert Hayes and Catherine Beller and it's, uh, Kathleen Beller. I mean, and Beatty is in this and, and tries to give it some sense of life. I, I feel like this is a film where Robert Hayes told his agent, hey, I, I don't want to be the airplane guy anymore. I want you to find me something the exact opposite of that. And it really ultimately just reveals the limitations of his range. Like, it is not a film that will convince you, oh, Robert Hayes was overlooked and should have done more of this. Yeah, uh, and I, although I still consider him a very amiable actor, I like him very much. Uh, this is a very bad film across a long string of bad films. <clears throat> and now we go live to Drew McWeenie with Martial Arts Report and A Fistful of Talons. Uh, I profoundly love this movie. Some great action sequences, and I do admit I did speed up a little bit through some of the talky talk. Sun Chung is a guy, he directed a a ton of movies, well over 30 films, and I think uh, had a really good sense of both action and scale uh, in his work. Fistful of Talons is a showcase for actor Billy Chong, And it comes at a time when, for a while, everybody wanted the new Bruce Lee. Once Bruce Lee died, everybody tried to find the new Bruce Lee. That led to, sort of accidentally, Jackie Chan, who was far funnier. And then everybody started trying to find a new Jackie Chan. So I think Billy Chong kind of benefited from that. And there's certainly, at the beginning of this, a sort of lighter, goofier comedy tone. He kung fu washes a horse in one scene. Reminded me a little of Stephen Chow, actually. And it's a pretty standard story. Uh, Republican China is starting to come back. The Republic is starting to come back. Billy Chong plays a guy who there is somebody in his village who is sort of taking on the royal guards who are showing up, cutting off their braids. It's a it's a form of protest that's going on. And he gets he meets the guy. He becomes involved with him. He wants him to train him to do that as well. There's a, a girl who is working for the main bad guy. She has eagles that she can attack people with. It builds, as all of these do, to a fight between the two different schools of Kung Fu. Truly terrific action scenes in terms of how they're staged. It's not you and Wu Ping, it's the other Wu Ping. There's some terrific choreography. I saw the movie at QT3, the Tarantino Festival at the Draft House, and this was one of the Kung Fu Night movies. It was the last movie of the night. And it was his print. He had never seen it. He knew Billy Chong. He wanted to watch it because he heard it was pretty good. The movie builds to a fight between Billy Chong and the main bad guy, and there's two eagles attacking them. There is a moment at the end of the film. I will not say what, but there's a moment that is jaw-dropping. It's such an insane moment. As soon as it happens, it freeze frames. The end comes up, and that's it. You're Uh, done. I don't think my jaw dropped, but I did audibly go, 
Dude, you should have heard the theater that night. The theater went fucking crazy. If you ever want to play detective in Tarantino's filmography, watch the last 10 minutes of this film. Watch how it's cut. Watch where they cut out on it. Watch how the effect works. And then go watch Death Proof. My theory is the end of Death Proof, the way he cuts that ending, the way he cuts the black, the way he freeze frames everything is a reaction to this because he heard the way an audience lost their goddamn mind for this and went, I want to do that someday. How do you feel about Michael Winner? Oh, Death Wish 2. Yeah, what do you got? All right, all right. So you're you're comfortable in that sort of milieu. Great. Do you enjoy the ease and comfort of working with a completely reasonable person like, say, Faye Dunaway? Faye Dunaway and Michael Winner? Tell you what, just give me a stroke right now. <laughs> Who would have put those two together and then said, and now let's make a romantic melodrama with Denholm Elliott as the romantic lead? Uh, Denham Elliott, John Gielgud, Alan Bates, Faye Dunaway. And what's it called? The Wicked Lady. It was a wicked time filled with wicked people. But the wickedest of them all was really wicked lady. Wicked. She really knew how to whip up a good time. Faye Dunaway is the wicked lady. Rated R. Oh, boy. This is an adaptation of a non-comedy. Legend indicates that in pre-production, Michael Winner decided probably because he wasn't confident in his skills, that they were going to do it as a farce. This movie made me yearn for the likes of Yellowbeard. It's atrocious, and I remember you tweeting about it. It's one of these movies where they assume that if they throw elaborate costumes and things, that somehow classes it up, but it is really poorly written. Denholm Elliott is the guy who is the landowner. He's supposed to marry a young, beautiful woman. Instead, her predatory sister swoops in, manipulates everybody, ends up marrying him, and then ends up so bored that she becomes a professional bandit. Okay, it's already bad enough the whole Denholm Elliott and Faye Dunaway chemistry. There's nothing between the two of them. But then when she actually becomes a, a highway robber, it feels like it's all a reaction to the Three Musketeers and the Four Musketeers. Like, everybody wants to make those, but those were really hard to get right. Yeah, I don't get the whole, like, Victorian-era comedy, Zorro the Gay Blade, Yellowbeard. I don't, I'm just, like, it's not funny unless you really have good writers, and this is cheap garbage. And if the material was decent, then fine, but it really just feels like... Well-paid actors kind of mugging and humiliating themselves and waiting for someone to say cut so they can go home and make a better film. None of those actors apparently were invited to audition for the wildly generic romantic comedy. All right, so it's a romantic comedy, but what's the title, Scott? Dudley Moore and Mary Steenburgen in Romantic Comedy. No, that's not a title. That's a genre. What's the title of the film? I don't know what else to say. I'm at the mercy of this horrible film. It's actually called Romantic Comedy. He's romantic. He's hilarious. In one of the biggest comedy hits in years, Romantic Comedy.
You know what's crazy is that it was a play first and somebody went, oh man, this works so well that we have to make a movie. I can't imagine a stage version of this thing being any better than the movie. I am so fed up with comedies about Dudley Moore's dick. I don't care. I like that he's actually introduced via dick in this movie. His meet cute with uh, Mary Steenburgen and involves him exposing himself to her unwittingly. Uh, he's a person who shouldn't be with anybody. She's a person who's so perfect and they're going to circle each other for years and not realize they should be together, but maybe they shouldn't be together, but maybe they should be together. But who gives a fuck? I'm telling you, somebody out there could write a really fun article on the rotten shittiness of the Dudley Moore characters that we've covered so far. Arthur is the most admirable. All right, how about that? Arthur Hiller is a guy who I I think is wildly uneven, wildly. I don't understand how the guy who makes The In-Laws, one of the dizziest, weirdest comedies, and it nails tone in a way that is almost impossible. I don't understand how that guy makes this, that lays there and just begs for air for two hours. As is always the case uh, in awful films in which she appears, Frances Sternhagen pops up here and there and actually delivers a few chuckles just through sheer force of attitude and personality. Just couldn't stand this movie. I immediately want to wash it off with some real comedy, Drew. Do you have some real comedy over there for me? I do. I have a uh, concert film by a gentleman who I think uh, Arthur Hiller did right by. In one of the few instances that's true in the movie Silver Streak, I am talking, of course, about the first directorial effort by Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor, here and now. The two most beautiful words in the world of comedy. Richard Pryor. You remember me? In his all-new film, he talks about driving yourself to drink. I had to stop drinking, though, because I got tired, like, waking up in my car driving 90. And drinking while you're driving. Please welcome under my. How you feeling? I was in Richard Pryor, here and now, rated R. It's his third theatrically released concert film. It's the third best, and it's still got some really drop dead funny shit in it. It's weird because it's a decent set. There's some really good stuff in it. There's the moment where somebody's yelling at him, do Mudbone, do Mudbone. And he gets up and he does Mudbone again. And he promises at the beginning, this is it. This is the last time we're ever going to see Mudbone. I think he retired that character daily. Like every time he did it, he was like, this is it. This is the last time. And it's a weird set. He gets heckled a few times. He's not quite on his game the way he normally is. I think it is a very accurate record of where Richard was post-accident as he was trying to put himself back together. And I think it spotlights one of the things that I find most interesting about as an artist, which is he, so much of his work is predicated on a breathtaking honesty and that's why when it's only like a b minus joke you're still like all right because you have this connection to the guy who where he is so brutally vulnerable and honest about his mistakes and his successes uh that you can't help but relate to him in that like he's only human even here though there's that thing that richard does where he gets up next to the truth because he wants to tell you the whole truth. He can't help himself, but he's afraid to tell you the whole truth. So this one, there's a lot of biographical editing going on in the, the material here. And it's fascinating because just a few years later, Richard completely come around on several of the things he talks about here and was telling different versions of these stories. But that's why it works as a record of this moment. He had now had the comfort 
buffer of that Superman 3 money, where he got paid insane, indecent money to do that film for him. And it finally gave him a little bit of room to breathe and to try to rebuild his life. And I think you see a a happier, healthier sort of Richard Pryor here. You sense a few moments where he's just like, oh, that's just a silly riff. He's he's being goofy there. I, I don't think it's as good as uh, Sunset Strip or Live in Concert. 50 or 60% Richard Pryor is still better than most stand-up. I would agree. Now, Scott, it's time for us to move on to our next film. Can you tell me what this movie is called? Mr. Connery, I believe this is the second of two James Bond films released in the same year. Let's discuss the unofficial kind of Thunderball remake, Never Say Never Again? Sean Connery makes a welcome return. This is the better Bond and by a wide margin, declares the New York Times. Sean Connery is back and greater than ever, says Rex Reed. Jewel Siegel says Connery is wonderful. It's inventive, imaginative, tension-filled fun, says the Los Angeles Times. And Gene Siskel of At The Movies declares 007's a winner again. See Sean Connery in Never Say Never Again. Rated PG. Now playing. Here's what I don't get about it. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Let's start at the beginning. Explain to people how it is that a a semi-remake of Thunderball came to be from from a studio outside of the official Bond films. It's because Ian Fleming was a thief, is the short version of the story. He worked on a screenplay for a movie called James Bond of the Secret Service with a guy named Kevin McClory. And they came up with a story that eventually became Thunderball. But when it didn't get set up as a film, Ian Fleming just took everything they did and wrote the book Thunderball. And Kevin McClory, quite rightfully, said, um, fuck you, and sued him. And the lawsuit gave Kevin McClory the screen rights to the story after that. When he finally announced that he was going to make his own James Bond franchise, what he was threatening was he was going to do an entire series of films based entirely on the plot elements of Thunderball. That's why for so many years, Blofeld and Spectre got really, really, really legally sticky because technically Kevin McClory kind of helped come up with Spectre and kind of helped nail down who Blofeld was as part of Thunderbolt. So it got to be a mess. And the Eon producers hated Kevin McClory, hated that he was always out there. And every time he threatened to make a movie, they threatened to sue him or they did sue him. And so by the time 83 rolled around, they hated each other. And this was the result. Drew, which is the better film? Never Say Never Again or Octopussy? Never Say Never Again. I concur. Barbara Carrera gives a villain performance in this movie that is every bit as dialed in and dedicated as Jack Nicholson is the Joker. I have her in all caps on my notes. She is the she best thing in the movie. loves what she's doing. And I would argue understood that women rarely got to do this, especially in the Bond series. So she is eating it like a lunch. And God bless her, man. She nails it. She is great as Fatima Blush. A lot of Bond fans dismiss the non-canon films out of hand. But as clunky as this is, it is better than A View to a Kill, it Octopussy, many of the Roger Moore movies. It kind of gets mired a little bit with the I'm getting too old for this shit tone, but they drop that stuff about halfway through, and then it just becomes a pretty standard adventure story. I'm sorry, I'll take Sean Connery kind of ruefully chuckling about his midsection over Roger Moore in a giant clown outfit. It's interesting watching how they skirt right up to formula, but without 
totally playing the Eon formula. Like their version of M in this movie, they are Q. They can't call him Q and they have to be very careful about how they right. handle there it. Is, there are aspects of the franchise that they had no legal right to use. So you will miss certain but things. They, but they have a little dude who's really into his gadgets and who's excited that he gets to give James Bond something that might blow his arms off by mistake. And, you know, you've got Felix Leiter, who I think is used pretty well in this. And overall... It's an okay action movie, and Irvin Kirshner does a nice job with some of the big action scenes. Irvin Kirshner of Empire Strikes Back? That's correct! I will say that it has one of the goofiest scenes in any James Bond movie, and it is a victim of the time in which it was made, in which James Bond and the main bad guy in the movie sit opposite each other in a casino and play video games real intensely at one another. It's like the Bishop of Battle. Uh as most of our listeners will probably know, uh, Drew, why don't you give the little tidbit on the film's title and what it means? Uh, well, when he quit the first time, they paid a, I believe the actual term is a fuck ton of money to get him to come back and do Diamonds Are Forever. And he came back for one film and then quit again. And when he quit, he swore, I will never, ever play James Bond again. And then apparently his wife at the time recommended Never Say Never Again. I kind of like the title. It makes about as much sense as most James Bond titles. This movie has Bernie Casey, Kim Basinger, Barbara Carrera, Klaus Maria Brandauer, Gavin O'Herlihy, Rowan Atkinson. And he is doing such a stiff upper lip Brit in this movie. In the Bahamas. He's an ambassador. When he first shows up, he's got his jaw, his lower jaw stuck all the way out in front of his face. He sounds like Thurston Howell III. It's insane. You know what else is insane? Ah. The level of stardom that Tom Cruise was achieving at this point in time. The latest evidence after the smash hit of Risky Business, All the Right Moves. Tom Cruise is Stefan Georgievich. You know, there's going to be recruiters there from every college that I want to go to. He's got one person who believes in him. I hate football. I just like to watch number 33 run around in those tight black pants. One shot at a future. If he leaves here, you'll probably lose him. And one chance. A chance to make all the right moves. Rated R. I think it's a really honest little movie. I think it benefits enormously from Michael Chapman, who was best known as a cinematographer. He is a terrific cinematographer who worked with uh, Martin Scorsese on Raging Bull and Taxi Driver. Uh, Scott, I'm sure you love his work in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh, yes. Unbelievable photographer. And um, I got to say, I think... What he does here, it's a it's a movie about small-town football. Tom Cruise is a guy working in a Pittsburgh mill town who wants out. He comes from a, you know, his parents are Serbian. Everybody in his town either needs football to get out or they're going to go to work at the mill. He doesn't want to play football his whole life. He just wants to get an engineering scholarship. But it's enough of a motivation that he knows he's got to play the game. And it's about what happens when he pisses off his coach who can then fuck his future up. And... It's just a battle of wills between him and Craig T. Nelson, who plays the coach. Uh, Leah Thompson plays his girlfriend, and she's terrific in it. We talked in the bonus episode about uh, working with Tom Cruise and how he really kind of stood up for her as a co-actor in this movie. And uh, Chris Penn has a very good uh, sporting role as his buddy who gets a girl pregnant. It's a really solid, tiny, character-driven movie with a... Totally honest Tom Cruise performance. It is one of the most, uh, this is going to sound like a backhanded compliment. It's one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen that is takes place in or around Pittsburgh by Jan de Bont. So now, like, you think 
geez, Michael Chapman, a world-class DP, who's he going to hire to shoot his movie? <laughs> and it's Jan DeBont at the top of his game, and the screenplay in many ways is very standard. You kind of know where it's going, and you know it could have one of two different outcomes in a realistic world, and you get one of them, and it's delivered in a satisfying fashion. Tom Cruise holds his own against a force of nature, a Craig T. Nelson performance, who is intimidating even when he's just sitting in a chair. He represents, you know, kind of everything that Cruise b- wants to both uh, impress and move beyond at the same time. It's funny because I don't even think Friday Night Lights or shows that have done the whole high school football experience have ever really done as good a job at showing you how one fit of peak from this guy can end somebody's life. And there are points in this movie where you're like, yeah, he's Tom Cruise, you're a fucking hot-headed little asshole. Yeah, but then you start to think, okay, but dude doesn't ha- deserve to have his entire life ruined. <laughs> and it creates a real interesting back and forth between, yeah, no, the coach has every right to, mm, he's gone a little too far. And, oh, Tom Cruise didn't mean, uh, oh, maybe he shouldn't. Have, you know, it really does give you a good push and pull. It reminds me of a gender switched but slightly more sincere version of Flashdance. Like Fast Times at Richmond High, this is a movie that takes the um, – the responsibility, as well as the giddiness of teenage sex, it treats it very realistically and it's very smart about it. The moments where they deal with just their relationship and how it charts emotionally and physically is very well done. There's a great reconciliation scene after he treats her like shit in front of some people where she goes back to him and tells him what she needs and what she wants. And if more characters and more films spoke as clearly and as honestly to one another as these two do in a couple of key scenes... There'd be no third act ridiculous threes company misunderstandings in movies because it's it's interesting to see people who just they say what they want and then they figure out how to get there. It's like uh, intentionally low key and it, it succeeds because of that. It's a it's a very good film and I was kind of half expecting it to be like all right after risky business now he's doing like I'm the underdog football star and it's not that at all. It was it a hit. It was it was a modest hit. It did okay. It it made like twenty million at the U.S. box office, and for a tiny character study, that's a pretty solid performance. And it I think benefited enormously from kind of drifting in on the tailwind of risky business, which was definitely at that point starting to become a sensation. I will say that there is one hilarious line in the film where Tom Cruise claims that he is five foot ten. Um, <laughs> I didn't catch that. Oh yeah, he says there's not much call for a five foot ten cornerback in the NFL, and I'm like, yeah, there's not much call for a five foot six one either, or a five um, foot two one. <laughs> yeah, a uh, little optimistic there, buddy. But really entertaining film, uh, and I gotta say, it's a month of low key charmers because I would use that same phrase about this next film, the intriguing and I would say gripping at times under fire. Nicaragua. 1979. It's June 10th, the evacuation of Lyon. Their job is reporting the news. Until they see too much. Something happening to us. Yeah, I think it is. Until they feel too much. Until they must take action. This roll of film in the camera of a U.S. photojournalist under fire on all sides is one hell of a picture. Nick Nolte, Gene Hackman, Joanna Cassidy, Jean-Louis Trintignant, under fire.
uh, ripped from the headlines based on actual events. Story of a, a photojournalist who goes to Nicaragua in the middle of a military coup to get the truth. And that's Nick Nolte. And he comes across uh, professional colleagues and, and nemeses as played by uh, Joanna Cassidy and Ed Harris and Gene Hackman. At, at times, it is a fascinating film. At times, it's a little dry, but it's extremely well directed by Roger Spottiswood, who, based on this alone, could have gone in a different direction. I'm a big fan of this guy, even his like sitcom movies, but the war sequences and the grit of this movie is, is really palpable. It's very well made. There were so many people trying to do Nicaragua, trying to figure out how to set a movie in Nicaragua and how to set a movie in Central America and really dramatize it. We just covered one last month, say, uh, last plane out. And I think this movie really gets it right. Like it does a good job of explaining what the, the situation was, why Somoza was who he was who the players were in the national stage. And then I like the way it kind of just starts dropping characters in. I, I think Nick Nolte believes in the truth is the most important thing and you get the real shot no matter what. It's largely about the way he lets his own moral code lead him by the nose in some key places. And I think that's an interesting character. Uh, I really like the character played by Ed Harris in the film, who is a traveling mercenary. And they use him as sort of a wry commentary on the fact that nobody really gives a shit about what's happening in Nicaragua. It's all about the money. I'll say this. I like that Joanna Cassidy and Nick Nolte and Gene Hackman all seem to have enough miles on them as characters that they're not kids who are falling in and out of bed. These are people who have, you know, they've lived long enough to, they want what they want and the war zones that they work in kind of justify the fact that you just take what you can get when you can get it. I, I just to throw some love, Roger Spottiswood is a guy who started out as an editor uh, for Peckinpah and Walter Hill. So that probably at least partially explains why he's uh, so astute uh, behind the camera here. But he would go on to do some of my, Favorite underrated uh, 80s films. His next movie we'll get to is The Best of Times. And then in 88, we get to a movie called Shoot to Kill, which I think I want to do an entire episode on because I love it so much. Uh, shot by John Alcott, who uh, is the stupendous photographer who shot 2001 and Clockwork Orange and Barry Lyndon and The Shining. John Alcott's work in this, I think, is one of the reasons the movie works so well. It feels very captured. It feels like you've been dropped into a war zone, and he does a nice job of making it feel like um, you're on the fringe of something that's happening, and it's just kind of being captured. And what I like about this is you could tell when something is ripped from the headlines, right? And you can also tell when it's being, like, cheaply done and opportunistic and not so interested in facts or actual people. And this screenplay, co-written by, I believe, Ron Shelton, before he became a sports movie uh, guru— I think does a really respectful job of just putting American characters in this setting, but also making sure to, you know, actually tell some of the story that matters. Well, I think Clayton Froman's script was based on the actual incident where the ABC reporter was killed on camera. And then Ron Shelton was brought in to turn it into an actual like film. And I think it's that combination of the sort of documentary side with the absolutely movie movie side that does make this work really well. And uh, I've got to say, the score, the Goldsmith score in particular, I love the guitar throughout the entire thing by Pat Metheny. It's a, it's a haunting score and one that I really, really adore.
now we're going to move from something Drew adores to something I'm going to guess he equally adores because it shares a lot of the same DNA with a film called The Outsiders, which he loves rapturously. Francis Ford Coppola's Rumblefish. You always try so hard to be like your brother, Rusty James. Hey, my brother's the coolest. Rusty James can't live up to his brother's reputation. We could have run this whole side of town if you just gave me a chance. His brother can't live it down. You know, if you're going to lead people, you have to have somewhere to go. Matt Dillon, Diane Lane, Mickey Rourke, Rumblefish, rated R. So here's the other film that I was talking about where it's kind of a referendum on who the best young actors at the moment were. Fair to say it's not an official, but fair to say a spiritual sequel to The Outsiders because the characters are slightly older, more a little more cynical. Things are a little bit more less hopeful, a little bit more downbeat. All of her stuff was very similar. All of her stuff came out of that same sort of world and feeling that emotional what I've always heard Coppola said that he responded to in this was his relationship with his older brother, August. Within his family, he felt like August was the success. August was the one that everybody loved. Imagine you're the director of The Godfather and The Godfather 2. And the conversation. And you're having doubts about your place in your family because your older brother is more... But it just goes to show you that it doesn't matter what you do. Your family is your family, and those feelings are very real. And so I think the movie taps into that beautifully. And he approached Matt Dillon while he was writing and worked on this script. This cast, I, I think, is in a different way. It's smaller, but it's equally as impressive as The Outsiders. You've got Mickey Rourke, Matt Dillon, Diane Lane, Dennis Hopper, Vincent Spano, Lawrence Fishburne, and Nicolas Cage. Uh, they're chasing sort of that method. They all want to be the best young actor. And at this point... All of them have the same opinion, which is it's Mickey Rourke. Mickey is the guy that they're all scared of because they know he's the best guy working. When you watch this movie, I get why they were all kind of freaked out by him and amazed by I him. I know that in, in current years, he's been kind of uh, lampooned a bit and uh, he's, he's not as quite as impressive as a figure as he was then. But I, and I believe you'll agree with me, Mickey Rourke had done some amazing work in the 1980s. I cannot wait to cover some of his movies. He is fantastic. And he's beautiful here. They all are. Matt Dillon is beautiful in this. Mickey Rourke is beautiful. Diane Lane is startlingly pretty in this movie. I love young Sofia Coppola as her little sister with the the overbite. and the, She's just hilarious. What about uh, the Stuart Copeland score? I know you love to... Oh my God. The soundtrack on this film is almost all percussion. Like, it's uh, it's almost like the uh, Mickey Hart abandoned score for Apocalypse Now, where it was all percussion. It's like a night... I mean, this film is scored almost like a, a, a long nightmare. I'm not, in a good, I mean that in a good way. Uh, it's evocative. Talk about the cinematography, Drew. Because Motorcycle Boy, the Rourke character, is uh, somewhat deaf and he's colorblind, um, the movie is processed through his point of view. So even though he doesn't appear for a little while in the film, we see the world the way Motorcycle Boy does, which is muted. Everything in this movie. So the movie's in black and white, little bursts of color here and there. We talked last time about how Koyanis Katsi uh, cast a long shadow over style choices that other directors made. This 
is literally the first film inspired by it. Coppola was an exec producer on that. And as he was watching rushes come in, he had ideas of how to take that sped up photography for uh, skies and for cloudscapes and use that to sort of evoke emotion in Rumblefish. So literally we're watching him build off of the vocabulary that another filmmaker just introduced for him. I don't think he's really like any of his peers or his contemporaries. I think Coppola is a guy who, over the course of his entire career, has not been terribly concerned with how much box office he makes, but has always been concerned with the experience and the exercise and the artistic challenge of something for the sake of it. And I think this was very much a case of he loved this. He had the cast already there in Tulsa. So as soon as they finished shooting The Outsiders, he rolled right into production on this, kept a lot of the same people there, and just started shooting something else. This, to me, is the more playful of them. The Outsiders is the one that I would show anybody. The Rumblefish is the one that I would show the people I think are really cool. I, I think it's great. I think it's a great movie. And may- maybe, maybe better than The Outsiders, Drew. Maybe. I can see how somebody would love one over the other because I think they are both so radically different. You know what nobody loves? Oh, what's that? This piece of shit comedy that has haunted my life since 1983, starring three normally hilarious SCTV people, and it's called Going Berserk. Be on the lookout for this man. He's been linked to dangerous convicts. What are you doing here? I set fire to my family. He's a handcuffed, hardened criminal. Please, please, I don't want to go with you. John Candy is John Bergen-Yong. He's the most wanted man in America. And he was last seen going for service. <laughs> going for service, rated R. Go. We talk about how Strange Brew, <sighs> even though it is characters that come from SCTV, doesn't use Melonville or any of the sort of setting of SCTV at all. Going Berserk mentions Melonville early on, and you're like, oh, wait, all right, is this the Melonville? Nope. Once again, I think it's thrown in as almost a nod to what they've done. These guys are all connected. Uh, John Candy, Joe Flaherty, and Eugene Levy are all connected by SCTV. They're actually connected before that by David Steinberg's The David Steinberg Show in the late 70s. Steinberg is the director of this and clearly the creative force behind it. And he's the reason that I would not call this an SCTV movie. I would call this a movie that tried to cash in on SCTV and failed miserably. I would call it a a fucking garbage pile. I, I feel terrible for these three actors Imagine you're a, an up-and-coming comedic actor and, you know, you, you see two of your cohorts uh, a month earlier come out with a great movie like Strange Brew and you're like, oh, that's great, good for them, our movie's coming up next. And their movie comes out and it is a laugh-deficient tumor of a movie. I hated watching this. I felt like I was sitting on a subway next to a man who smells like fish or hot beef and he just keeps talking about how much he hates Star Trek Four, And he won't shut up. That's going berserk. Well, I didn't hate it like that. I don't think it's a very good movie. I just think it's inert. It's it's the Manchurian Candidate done as a comedy. Yes. Uh, it's about a fucking limo driver who gets brainwashed into maybe killing his father-in-law. You go ahead. Defend this piece of garbage. Go. I'm not going to defend it. Why am I in the position of having to defend a movie that I think is mediocre? Because I've been on Twitter all day and this is how I feel. Okay. Uh, I think it is a movie where you see clearly they were trying to still figure out what John Candy's on-screen charisma was. I don't think it was until Splash that anybody put him in anything where they really gave him a major role. 
Splash was it. Uh, people were kind of writing him as a slob or a wise ass, like like Bill Murray or Chevy Chase. No, no. The charm of John Candy is his likable, affable nature and just his quick wit. That's, you know, not look at me in this wacky uh, drag costume. Not that. It really just feels like, and I know no offense to David Steinberg, who is a comedy great, but not a great director. And it just feels like, hey, we got five or six funny people on set today. Let's shoot something. It it's never holds together. It's really strained. It doesn't even really have a sketch structure. So it's not even like they can drop in and out of funny bits to justify the rest of the plot. All right, let's move on. We've discussed this film longer than any other podcast in the history of the world. Now, we move on to a very uh, important film in the history of the uh, Disney live-action films because, as Drew and I have mentioned extensively, Disney had no effing clue how to approach the live-action market, uh, and then they released a fantastic film, and I'm going to just say right now that I'm going to bet Drew agrees with me as we discuss Carol Ballard's Never Cry Wolf. One of the most important contemporary films of its time. I wouldn't last six hours down there, let alone six months. An epic adventure of survival. <laughs> and self-discovery. Charles Martin Smith in an outstanding motion picture directed by Carol Ballard. Never Cry Wolf. Never Cry Wolf is clearly one of Kevin Costner's favorite movies. It's a terrific film. Part of it is that it is as beautifully shot as the the Black Stallion. That is not a casual comparison. Black Stallion is one of those movies that I, I think really stuck with me. And Carol Ballard, a lot of what he does in that movie is silent and has to do with the animals and has to do with shooting nature. I also adore the fact that he gave such a great role to Charles Martin Smith, who I... Love, love, love him in American Graffiti. I love him in The Untouchables. I love his work in more American Graffiti, which not a lot of people saw. And I've always felt like that performance is one of those moments where he laid it all out there. Nobody saw that movie. This movie asked everything of him. He's on screen from the very beginning to the very end. He had to work on this thing beyond the shooting. Is it true he had to like prep for over a year to do this? Yeah. He's in every frame of the movie. It's his movie. So... If Charles Martin Smith doesn't work, if you don't connect to him at some point early on in this film, you're in trouble. For those who don't know what it's about, in Alaska, there was a problem with the caribou population, and the local ranchers wanted to find out if the wolves that they believed were killing the caribou were killing them, how they were doing it, and they wanted the right to reduce the wolf population. So a study was commissioned, and nobody had ever seen the wolves feed. Nobody had ever really tracked them or paid attention to what they were doing. So his job was to track the wolves, find out what their feeding habits were, where they did it, and how it all worked. When you look at this film, like, writ large, he's like the word of God. If he says, yeah, the wolves are eating the caribou, then the word goes up the chain, and then these wolves are going to be wiped out. If he says, no, that's not the case, then these wolves cannot be hunted. I, as an adult... Loved this movie. I hope everybody who listens to this show will give it a shot, especially animal lovers. Co-written by, of all people, Sam Hamm and Curtis Hansen? Yeah, very early Sam Hamm. He was part of a, uh, a program at Disney to sort of try to figure out how to do more adult movies. And so they were just working with young writers and they were just throwing anything at the board. And Farley Mowat's book that this is based on was one of the things they they bought. By all accounts, 
even after they shot it, they continued to then kind of try to figure out what the shape of the film was. So in the final film, there's a credit for the narration and Charles Martin Smith gets a co-credit on that because he'd had the experience. Like he'd actually gone and lived this movie. And so when it came time to finally put that last round of paint on it, uh, he helped kind of shape it. Brian Dennehy gives a terrific performance. Yeah, I was going to mention he doesn't have a lot to do, but boy, when he's in the movie, he makes an impact. I love the Inuit cast. I think it's just two guys. It's Mike and Utek. And I really like the younger guy, Samson Jora, who plays Mike. I think it's one of those performances where you get somebody who's really this person and then you trust them to do very real work. And he's great. It is a weird mix of documentary and real because everything with the animals, they try to shoot as real as possible and as unobtrusively as possible. So it's a nature documentary in the tradition of the great Disney nature documentaries, just with a story wrapped around. It. Right, right. If I'm out on a mountain for a year and you're filming me shooting a fictional story, I was still sleeping on a mountain for a year. So, I mean, it's, I, 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 I'm very impressed by movies like this because, you know, you look at it on paper and you're like, God, it's going to be a really difficult shoot in really hard locations. And, and for something even of this scale, it's not going to be cheap. There's no guarantee that you'll ever strike a chord with a movie like this. I just think a movie like this is such a gamble. And, you know, kudos to the producers for uh, taking the chance on something like this. Okay, so Scott... I want to talk about this next movie because it is the first film since we have started doing this podcast that I have watched twice to prepare for an episode. I am a uh, lifelong horror fan, and I have heard buzzings and chitterings and chatterings among my friends for years that I should see this film, and I never volunteered that I hadn't. Man, oh man, was I blown away by Possession. Beyond the realm of human desire, there is a darkness. Well, that's why I'm with you. Because you say I for me. Almost. Almost. Yes. I wanted to show it to you. The darkness is forever. Possession. This is the only English language film of Anzej Zuofsky. Zuofsky is a guy who evidently was extreme in everything that he shot. Not familiar with his other work. Like I said, this is the only English language film he did. It was shot in 81. It was released in Europe in 81. Not in America until 1983. We've got a lot of you asking us why we haven't covered it yet. It's because this is the month it finally came out in the U.S. And Drew, if I were to tell you that this film is about a husband and wife who are going through a separation and that's it. That's all. <laughs> I think that's fair. I think um, it's a movie that defies what you think it's going to do all the way to the closing frames. Even once you know what the game is, it continues to kind of not do things that way. And there is a big game being played. There's an opening credit that I wish wasn't in the movie. Carlo Rambaldi. I wish that was in the closing credits only because it is a shame that you're even waiting for something he might have done. And it really is just a, uh, it's an important part of the film, but it doesn't really show its ugly head until well halfway through it. This movie is a fascinating series of basically histrionic exchanges between Sam Neill and Isabella Johnny, who are a married couple with a young uh, son, uh, he returned home after doing some covert operations overseas. I believe he's a spy. He discovers that 
she's been cheating on him and may or may not be in love with this weird German guy. And that just kickstarts a a virtually endless series of of spiteful arguments and physical violence and emotional torture, mostly from Sam Neill to his wife. I cannot say enough about how great these actors are, especially at this stage in their career, to go this manic and this over the top and not worry, oh boy, if I go this far over the top, this is going to... No, they're both amazing in this movie. (laughs) Zawofsky knew what he wanted because this is a film of enormous control. He lets you know only as much as he wants you to know at any given moment. And it takes you a while to even figure out who Sam Neill is, what he's doing, where he's been, what's going on, what's happening between he and Johnny. And Isabella Johnny has a tough thing where she's playing two different people plus one person is different versions of herself depending on whether or not she's got the fever at the uh, moment. She, she plays both his estranged wife and the teacher of his young student. And the, the viewer often is meant to think, all right, this is clearly not meant to be her doppelganger. It's probably a teacher who resembles his wife. And we, we're, but what we're seeing his perspective of her. And it's a phenomenal performance. It is a great subtle performance to counterpoint her other one. Uh, her lead performance it just asks her to run through virtually every human emotion possible. Sometimes within the space of about a minute and a half. Oh, she has two or three flip-out scenes that are horrifying, fascinating, uh, sympathetic. And and after a while, you're just like thinking 90% of the actors in the world can't do what she's doing here. Uh, Honestly. This is the film where when you look at what she does in this, I, I don't know that any director ever let her do more or ever trusted her with more or ever pushed her further. Goes into some darkly metaphorical areas in which she is, let without spoiling a lot of the interesting little tidbits, that she is now devolving or dissolving or dissoluting herself into something different. She is no longer a wife or an ex-wife or she is now just this this appendage of his that is vile and discuss how she sees herself. And he goes, Oh my God, the, the levels that Sam Neill goes through is, are just staggering. Well, that's the thing is everything she does and pushes, he gives back and the, the back and forth between them. Even if you just want to look, this as a metaphor about how fucked up divorce can be and about how you lose yourself in it. And you suddenly you're, you don't recognize the person you used to be married to and what are they doing? And you're obsessed with what they're doing and who they're doing it with. And is it better than it was with me? And that, and all of that sickness that goes into a divorce. I think if that's all this was, it'd be terrific because they're both so good. But Neil in this, I, I don't know that anybody had given him this to do yet. He is so delighted, so clearly delighted to be let off the leash like this and to be able to go as far as he does. And Heinz Bennett, as the German guy she's having the affair with, Heinrich, his two big scenes in this movie are a textbook in how to make me look at nothing other than what you're doing the entire time you're on screen. He has this segment where they're arguing, him and Sam Neill, and he won't stop moving. He, it's crazy, he, right? And I'm thinking, what is he doing? Is he on drugs? Is he just he can't a free stop spirit? looking though? Yeah, right. And I'm my interpretation is he's literally charmed by her. He can't stop. You know, when he discusses her, he has to dance and move like he is that enraptured by her. I, I, I wished I, I had time to watch it again. I will revisit this film in a couple of more years. I would absolutely recommend it to any horror fan. Uh, although it is only partially, I think, a horror film, but it 
definitely qualifies. It's also just a, a, a staggeringly weird drama about uh, separation, alienation. Yeah, it's, it's how you it's how you lose yourself in cruelty and how easy it is when you're hurt. Absolutely terrific. It's one of those movies that deserves a better reputation than it has, deserves to be a much bigger film than it is. It's like the best David Cronenberg film he never made, where when you find it, you can't believe this isn't canon for horror fans, but it should be. Speaking of Cronenberg. The ice is gonna break! <laughs> Mr. McWeenie, we are now getting into a film that I love almost as if it was a person that I could pick up and hug in my arms. I absolutely love, thank you, Stephen King, David Cronenberg, and the late, great Jeffrey Boehm for the brilliant adaptation Christopher Walken in The Dead Zone. Stephen King, author of Cujo and Carrie. David Cronenberg, director of Scanners. Together, they put you in the grip of The Dead Zone. You're a devil. From the mind of Stephen King, a vision of the future. The Dead Zone, rated R. Uh, showed it to the boys last week, watched it with them. We've read The Talisman together. They've seen The Shining. They know Stephen King. They've seen it. They're curious now. They want to get into his work. So uh, we sat and watched this one together, and there was a point midway through the film where Christopher Walken, it's in the later stages, Johnny Smith, once he's wearing the black pea coat all the time and he's got the haircut, Toshi turned to me and he said, Dad, you know that scene in The Terminator where it's the fake Arnold Schwarzenegger head and he's trying to take his eye out and it's a really bad puppet? I said, yeah. And he goes, Christopher Walken looks like that all the time. <laughs> and I'm like, thanks, buddy. Thanks. And now I can't unsee it. It's uh, He's got the same haircut. It's a terrific performance. It's one of Chris Walken's best pieces of work of the 80s. And yeah, you're right. It's the combination of that script, Cronenberg working restrained after the sort of excess of Videodrome, and an actor who just playing got that material. This, to me, is the best kind of coming out party for a, a filmmaker like Cronenberg because he'd already shown with several smaller films and then Scanners and then Videodrome that he could do shocking, gruesome, insightful, funny horror. But now for his big Paramount debut, it's easily one of his most refined, restrained, and classy, although it does have a couple of really twisted moments, uh, and it just showed, hey, I'm not all about viscera. I'm not all about body parts. You know, I, I can also make a thriller that is just has an, an emotional punch that has real characters. You're really scared about things. It is a faithful adaptation, which I love. There are things, of oh, course, yeah. there are things that are changed here and there. But uh, and I did want to take a moment, if I could, because I can, because it's my show, to shed a uh, quick spotlight on a screenwriter named Jeffrey Bowen. He got his start in 1979 with Straight Time, which we covered in one of our bonus episodes. And then throughout the 80s, he wrote The Dead Zone, Lethal Weapon, Inner Space, The Lost Boys, Funny Farm, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Lethal Weapon 2. He passed away, unfortunately, at 2000 of heart disease. Jeffrey Boham's name is on so many movies that I love. So every time we come to his films... Uh, we'll get to um, five more of his movies, uh, six more of his movies in this show. So rest in peace, Jeffrey Boehm. And boy, did you adapt a good novel really well. Drew, what are your three, aside from walking, what are your three favorite aspects of this movie? Well, I love Martin Sheen. One of the funniest things about this is how 
it is the diametric opposite of the president he plays on the West Wing. It's a little bit of the Badlands, Martin Sheen, too. And uh, Toshi not long ago saw Apocalypse Now. And so he shows up in this movie and Toshi's reaction was, my God, in Apocalypse Now, he's so quiet. and He's just watching for the whole film. And in this movie, he's talking nonstop and he can do everything. And I'm like, well, OK, that's two things. But yes, you're right. Martin Sheen's great. And that's what range is. So it's one of the first times I think he's noticed that an actor has range or that he's impressed by range. OK, and, so that's uh, one. I think the the way they handle the sadness of what goes on between he and Brooke Adams is pretty terrific. Brooke Adams. Between this and Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I will forever love this woman for just those two movies. The third thing is, and I think you touched on this, this came in the middle of a run of King adaptations where if you stuck close to the book, you got a pretty good movie. And this and Cujo and Christine are all faithful adaptations done at a point where it feels like you're taking what he wrote on the page and you're doing your best to simply translate it. And I think this was King rebounding from the hurt of The Shining. He really resented that adaptation, and he tried to take some more control, and he tried to really make sure that the filmmakers would at least respect the books. And this is that run of stuff where it kind of worked for a little while. There was a really good run of King material here. Colleen Dewhurst has a couple of moments in this movie that are earth-shattering painful, heartbreaking, just unbelievable. She's a phenomenal actor who's, this is probably her 150th film, and she doesn't have a lot of scenes, but she is amazing in this movie. Drew, let's just talk just a minute or two about the brilliance of Christopher Walken and why he never really took as a leading man. We saw we did Dogs of War, and he's oh, very... Oh, he's weird as shit. Yeah, but a lot of lead actors are weird as shit. What, 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 can you name any other leads for him besides Dogs of War and this? There's something predatory about him. There's something about... Look at the scene in Pennies from Heaven. Look at the dance scene. He's going to fuck you. There's something about Chris Walken that is hungry and scary and a little dangerous. And even when he's trying to be charming Chris Walken, look at the opening scene of this movie. He's in the classroom talking to the students. And I love that, by the way, he brings up the Headless Horseman from Sleepy Hollow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, There's a danger in the structure of this that it's going to be too episodic. And... I think what he does really well is show you how each of the episodes then weighs on Johnny, how each one of them drives him further and further into privacy. He eventually retreats into uh, being a private tutor and living in a town completely different than he originally lived in just so nobody can find him. But little by little, fate just keeps putting its thumb on him and he keeps pushing him towards something. And what Walken does well is as Johnny gets more and more disconnected from other people, Walken's very good at playing that acceptance of being alone. I do want to mention the phenomenal cinematography by Mark Irwin, the excellent score that I can still hear in my head by Michael Kamen. I write to it all the time. It's a great score. I love it. It is a phenomenal score. I always thought it was Howard Shore. I was wrong. And we have to throw some love to the late, great Deborah Hill, who worked almost exclusively with John Carpenter, but was a producer on this. And boy, I think a lot of the beauty of this movie is a testament to Deborah Hill's work. Moving from there, you talk about that as a movie that you love, like it is a uh, a person in your life. Um, I feel that way about this next film, which is in my top 20 films of all time and might be my favorite film about America. The Right Stuff. 
is a great American movie in a new epic form, says the Washington Post. CBS News calls it the most important, thrilling, and inspired movie of the year. An instant American classic. And ABC TV says it's a terrific motion picture, perfectly put together. Go see it. The Right Stuff, rated PG, now play. Drew, what is it about movies that we love that failed so miserably that makes us love them just a little bit more? Because this movie bankrupted a production company. I feel like the failure of this movie was a failure of the early 1980s, frankly. We were in the middle of the beginning of the Reagan era, and there was a definite pushback. And um, Philip Kaufman's movie celebrates the accomplishments of the Mercury 7 astronauts. And I think it's way more than just a celebration of sort of the pioneer spirit. The film is a dream about heroism and celebrity and ego and optimism it does this beautiful job of getting you up close with these now legendary figures and then humanizing them to make the point that nobody starts as a legend. You are not a legend. For, you're not John Glenn, the legend first. You're John Glenn, a human being who does something that eventually gets turned into this other thing for some reason. I think he uses humor and he's unromantic about everything that went into getting us into space. And Kaufman not only captures everything that's great about Tom Wolfe's book, steering one of the greatest ensembles assembled in the 1980s, but he also creates, I think, one of the most potent portraits ever of what it takes to be great. Let's talk for a second about Philip Kaufman. Prior to this, what in his filmography told people that if you were to say this is an important moment in American history, can you make the best possible? Yes, you can fictionalize it here and there, but can you try to make it as as true and honest and, and sincere as you can and still make an entertaining movie? You couldn't do better than this film. <laughs> it's so many of these, so many of the filmmakers that we have talked about so far in the early '80s, who define the early '80s, are guys who really were all about movies. They were film brats. They came out of just film. Phil Kaufman is a guy that he traveled. He had a whole life before he came back and became a filmmaker. And you know, later in his career, he made a movie called Henry and June about Henry Miller and Anais Nin, uh, an author that he was in love with it uh, for a time. He knew them. He actually backpacked through Europe and he met these people and he lived some of that life. And he he has this European cultured side to him that changes the way he approaches his subjects. He is not a movie brat the way so many of our favorite filmmakers from the time were. He was working sort of parallel to them, but working in myth and working in trying to elevate genre. So when you look at The Outlaw Josie Wales, which he wrote, or you look at Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which he wrote and directed, those are movies that are absolutely genre films, but they are elevated genre film because he considered genre just a way to get to all the other stuff that was so important and interesting. I got to do this. You know you're going to hate me. Sam Shepard, Scott Glenn, Ed Harris, Dennis Quaid. Fred Ward, Barbara Hershey, Veronica Cartwright, Kim Stanley, Pamela Reed, Lance Henriksen, Donald Moffat. It just keeps going, dude. It doesn't, it doesn't stop. David Clennon is in this movie. Jeff Goldblum has a small part. Jeff Goldblum and Harry Shearer are hilarious in this film together. Why did this movie bomb? Patriotism was not cool at that moment. And not only not cool, but there was a real culture war going on, not unlike today, in which people felt like what was coming was really scary. And so the Cold War was going on. We were at a very different place. We were not winning the Cold War. It had been dragging on for so long now that the accomplishment of space no longer felt like the finish line that it might have felt like at the time. 
I am of the opinion, I grew up in Florida. Uh, I lived in Florida for a long time. I lived near Cape Canaveral. I've gone to launches. I grew up addicted to space and addicted to the idea of space as maybe the greatest thing we ever did as human beings. One of the things that is so hard about this film is you're dealing with effects, but to recreate something that we had seen news footage of and that we saw live. So the effects couldn't be like Star Wars effects. The effects had to be utterly unchallengeable. You had to believe everything your eyes saw in this film. This movie does not get acclaimed enough for pulling off the impossible. There's stuff that they did in this movie that just barely works. Philip Kaufman used the right effect for everything. So everything cuts together in a way that feels authentic. And man, he puts you in the canopy for these things. He puts you in the spaceship. He makes you feel what it felt like to break the sound barrier for the first time. Caleb Deschanel is just one of the most accomplished cinematographers. And this movie captures what what my hazy non-memories of what the 1960s would have looked like. Look like the right stuff. It is... It is so beautiful uh, just to look at. Uh, He was nominated but did not win. This fine film did win Oscars for Best Sound, Best Editing, Best Sound Effects Editing, Best Score by Bill Conti. Oh, my God, the score for this film. Oh, my God, that score is unbelievable. When this film came out, it played a 70 millimeter engagement in Memphis. My aunts, uh, who were both in Memphis at the time, nobody else wanted to go see it with me. I talked them into going. We went across town to see the 70 millimeter presentation, and I remember being flattened by it. I vaguely remember my dad loving this movie and me popping in and out a couple times to see moments and just no interest. And I think I probably revisited it 21, 22 years old and went, good God, I've been in love with it ever since I first really saw it as an adult. I, and I think I have a soft spot for epics that break the rules of what epics are supposed to be. It's one of the reasons Lawrence of Arabia is my favorite film is, although it is an epic and a historical epic, I think it's a really intimate story. Yeah, most most movies of this ilk are about one central character. The right stuff is not about, I mean, Sam Shepard is ostensibly the main character, but it's about 12 or 15 main characters. It's about the passing of the torch. It's about the way each person builds on the other person's accomplishment. This guy breaks the sound barrier. This guy breaks Mach 2. This guy does this. This guy does that. And it's the way each of these people, you aren't great on your own. Somebody else pushes you and then you go, okay, I'm going to respond. I'm going to do this. And that's why we ended up in space. Not because any single one of these people was the right guy. It was because they were all the right people and all of that combined somehow and pushed all of them to create this moment. It is a quintessentially American film because it does not sugarcoat things. Nobody in this movie is perfect. Nobody in this movie is meant to be a god. Everybody has clay feet. Everybody's presented as human. One of my very favorite moments in the entire film is when John Glenn, Ed Harris's character, his wife has been mistreated by the news because of her stutter, because she's uncomfortable in front of cameras. And watching the way he protects her and cares for her and steps in to make sure that she has the room to to be comfortable, 
That's why he's my hero in this movie. Not because of the space stuff, not because of breaking the sound barrier, not because of it, but because of the way he treats his wife in the film. And that is the moment where I love him most. Yeah, I think my favorite thing about this movie is when you hear about things like the first man to break the sound barrier or the first person into space. And you, you want to think, what, what kind of person would be willing to shoot their body into space prior and no one else had ever done it before? This movie explains why certain men are willing to do those things. It's one of the greats. I can't, I can't say enough about it. I can get lost in this movie over and over. I'd see this movie in 180 millimeter. How about that? I think that's a hell of a plan. Guys, it has been a crazy month, and uh, we only have two more before we are done with this year of 80s all over. It is Hard for me to believe we're almost done with the fourth season. We are getting there, man. Uh, if you guys are not already Patreon supporters, please consider being one. Uh, we will give back to you. We are doing video content now. We do bonus episodes every other week. We also appreciate every review you leave or every time you recommend the show to anybody. You guys are the reason that it continues to grow. Thank you. Uh, I would like to add one little bit to the end of the show. I came up with the idea that at the end of the show, we should just randomly recommend a podcast. And, and I forgot about it a couple of months. So let's let's try and do that, Drew. Do you have one that you could just throw out? Uh, I don't, but I'll think of one for next time. You go for it. I, I will throw one out for uh, I don't like to get into politics on this show, but I will heartily recommend a podcast called Muller She Wrote which is a phenomenal podcast that covers all the madness that's going on. You know where, and they do it in very fun and informed fashion. So check them out. So Scott, next time we are going to be back with uh, some really bizarre stuff. We've got William Friedkin and Chevy Chase uh, working together. We've got Peck and Paw in decline. We have the most shocking slasher ending of the decade, a beloved holiday classic. And yes, we have Jack Nicholson as the horniest astronaut of all time. All of that when we return for November of 1983. The ice is gonna break! I want you out of here. <laughs>